God, you are so incredibly good to us, God. We come to you such a needy people, God. Lord, we, we have needs of ourselves, needs for our friends, for our brothers and sisters, needs in our families. God, we, we have so many needs, many of them great, but none of them as great as you, God. We come to you to tell you thank you for the prayers that you've answered. Thank you, God, for, for salvation of our souls, God. Thank you that you would hear and answer, that you would even listen to our prayers, God. Thank you for your sweet Holy Spirit that lives in us and that utters prayers on our behalf, words that we can't even speak, God, things that we don't even know, but you pray for us on our behalf, God. Thank you for being so incredibly good, God. Thank you for this precious book. Thank you for the words that you gave us, God, the words of life, the words of eternal life, God, everything that we need to know right here in this book, God. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that teaches us to it as we read and study and learn, Father. I pray, God, tonight, would you remove any sin, any hindrance, anything, Father, that would, anything that would hinder your Holy Spirit from moving freely in this place, from moving freely through me, God. I'd ask you to touch my lips, God. Would you speak through me, Father? I pray you'd speak into our ears, Father, and into our hearts that we may walk out a better servant, God. You said you didn't call us servants, that you called us friends because you've shared everything with us, God. Whatever you want to call us, God, I just thank you that you call us your children. Father, I just ask you, Lord, to help us. Help us to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 20. What did I tell y'all? Chapter 21, verse 22. Is that what I told y'all? You don't know. What did I say? Did I say chapter 21, verse 22? Huh? Did I say chapter 22, verse 21? See, and then y'all ain't paying attention. Y'all don't know what I even said. Go back, replay it. Well, whatever I said, you might want to be in, in Acts chapter 21. We left off at verse 22. We, we were looking where Paul and his, and his Christian Gentile friends, remember they've gone back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. It was two weeks ago. Um, they met with James, the leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Paul has told them about the thousands of Gentiles that have been saved on that final missionary journey that it went on. And, and to be honest, the attitude seems from, the, from James and from the elders of the church almost seems like so big deal. It, because their answer is thousands of, of Jews believe, but they also keep the law. So we see still some legalism here. They're still hung up on the law, hung up on some things. They said in verse 22, what is it therefore? The multitudes must need to come together for they will hear that thou art come. And that was where we left off, left off because either they themselves or they feel like the crowd around them, or maybe a combination of both, but they feel like there's going to be trouble. Somehow, somebody, somewhere is viewing the Apostle Paul as a troublemaker. So James comes up with this idea. We'll pick up there in verse number 23. He says, Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that thou know those things whereof they were informed concerning thee, and are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So they're trying to get Paul to agree to do these things so that the people would, would say he's walking orderly and keeping the law. It, it says in verse number 25, as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from 
fornication. So we know that at some point the Apostle Paul has obviously taken a vow. We know that he's probably taken the vow of a Nazarite. We studied it in Acts chapter 18 and verse 18. And Paul tarried there yet a good while. And this is Acts 18, 18. And took leave of the brethren and sailed since to Syria with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head at Centraea, for he had a vow. He came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jew. Now, here's the deal in Paul agreeing to do this. He, he's not insinuating that this is a vow that other people should take. He's especially not insinuating that the Gentiles should be bound by these Jewish traditions. If you remember Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he said in chapter 9 and verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. So Paul simply held this Jewish tradition because Paul never gave up on his dream to reach his Jewish brethren. Yes, he is a missionary to the Gentiles of the world. Yes, God sent him out to preach, but he never lost sight of who he was. He never lost sight of the Jewish people. He never lost his love for them. So, so here, here in the text, this is probably James that, that gives him this idea. Since he's the head of the church, he proposes that Paul goes through this ritual, if you will. I mean, honestly, since Christ fulfilled the law, anything done in accordance after is nothing more than a ritual. But because Christ fulfilled the law, because Christ fulfilled the sacrifices, anybody keeping up with you reading, you've been reading that stuff? Good, not alive. <laughs> anybody be glad when we get on the other side of that? Oh, so, so, so they're keeping up all of that stuff to keep Christ fulfilled every drop of blood. He fulfilled every turtle dove, every goat, every lamb, every sheep, every sacrifice, every minute, everything the priest had to do, every drop of oil, every unleavened bread. He fulfilled it all. So to continue what Christ has fulfilled, I, I'm sorry, but it's nothing more than tradition now. It becomes legalism. And so, so they're asking Paul to do it. And Paul knows this. But, but what Paul is doing is staying in touch, honestly, with some narrow-minded, legalistic views right here. Now, this is probably a pretty tough spot for Paul because he does want to gain the trust of the Jewish brethren. He does want James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem and all of his Jews there. He wants all of the Christian Jews to, to, to agree to be with him. But he wants all of the non-Christian Jews to, to feel for him. He, he wants to reach them with the gospel of Christ. He wants to see them saved. But on the other hand, he's got the Gentiles here with him. And the last thing he wants is to, is to put some kind of law to the Gentiles and, and make them feel like that, that there's something else that they need to do here. So, so Paul, Paul agrees, but Paul also knows he's been traveling with these Gentiles and they know exactly where he stands. They know that he knows they don't have to do this stuff. And, and so, so <clears throat> Here, here's what they, they require. They're saying that we want you to, to take these men. We want you to purify yourself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads, that they may know those things whereof they were informed concerning thee and nothing but, but it said that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Now, it seems to be that the elders here think that if, if others see Paul doing this, then it'll, it'll offset what we just saw back there in verse 22 about the troublemaker. 
about him being a troublemaker. If they see him doing these things and the Jewish religious crowd sees him keeping the traditions of the Jews, then, then it might bring some type of satisfaction. I mean, really, all this is a perfect time and considering that we've spent days to weeks now reading the 613 Levitical law. We've been reading over and over and over of the Mosaic law. And, and what we have here is nothing more. The, 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 the Nazarite vow is a Mosaic institution. So, so a Nazarite, we've looked at it before. You know, they, they can't shave their head. They can't touch a carcass. They can't touch anything that's dead. They can't partake of the fruit of the vine. There's some things that they can't do. But if they become unclean, then they are ceremonially unclean. And there are some things that they must do to, to go through a cleansing process. And that that's kind of what we have here. They're, they're to remain separated for one week. Then on the seventh day, they're to shave their heads and they're to take the hair and burn it in a fire. And then on the eighth day, they are to present some costly gifts. Number 613, the law of the Nazarite, when the days of his separation are, are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Everybody's like, man, I mean, that sounds like what I read this morning. It's, it's just continual. But, but he shall offer his burnt offering to the Lord, one he lamb of the first year without blemish for a burnt offering. One ewe lamb of the first year without blemish for a sin offering. One ram without blemish for peace offerings. A basket of unleavened bread. Cakes of fine flour mingled with oil. Wafers of unleavened bread anointed with oil. Their meat offering, their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. So they are to bring two lambs, one male, one female. They are to bring one ram. They are to bring their, their, their meal offering, bring their, their drink offering. They are to bring these things to the priest so that the priest makes atonement for them. That is the Old Testament law. But the Jews here at Jerusalem, they're still keeping the Mosaic law. Now, here's what they suggest to Paul. They're telling Paul, you need to go do this with these four men and you need to pay for it all. So, so what they're telling Paul is you need to pay for a dozen choice animals, a dozen choice prime, unspotted, without blemish. You need to pay for choice animals just to prove to others that you're still a Jew, just to prove to others that you haven't forsaken the law and you're, and you're not here to get rid of it. So what we see is a picture of Paul's heart for, for his Jewish brethren. You understand Paul was living in the greatest transitional period of time. I mean, this is the period when it went from the dispensation period of the law to dispensation period of grace. This is the time when the law was fulfilled and all of those things stopped in Christ. And now it's not about those things. It's about Christ. So the Apostle Paul is literally living in, in, the, in the greatest day that, that we've seen in a transitional period. And even though Paul knows it is nothing more than tradition... He knows he's no longer shackled by the things that Christ has set, like, like our sin, right? Somebody say amen. Somebody let me know you awake on a Wednesday night like our sin. We're no longer shackled to those things. We're no longer shackled to the sins of our past because we've been set free. Paul knows that he is no longer shackled to those things that Jesus Christ came and set him free. But he is willing to do anything that it takes short of compromising the gospel. To try to reach his lost brethren. We need that kind of heart. Boy, that's quiet on a Wednesday night. We need that kind of passion. We need that kind of desire for our neighbor. We need that kind of desire for our own family members that are lost and we know it. 
We don't even have that for people of our own families. We sure don't have that kind of passion for the people riding up and down that road that we don't even know. But listen, they're Gentiles, so are we. Just like Paul was a Jew, so were they. He didn't know them all on a first name basis. Some of them he'd never met. But it was his people and there, there, there's this desire. And, and he is willing to do whatever it takes outside of compromising the gospel to try to reach his brethren. Another thing that we see, this would have greatly eased Paul's decision, I believe, in verse 25, because they went on to say, as touching the Gentiles. So they're giving, and this is what you need to do, but as touching the Gentiles which believe, we've written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and, and from strangled and from fornication. So James and the elders of the church, they make it clear that they have no intentions of holding the Gentiles to these standards. More than likely, not only are they not holding the Gentiles to these standards, they don't even want them getting into Jewish traditions because the Jew and the Gentile are separate before Christ, and they don't want them having anything to do with their, their, their Jewish traditions. But they're making it clear right here, this is between them and the Apostle Paul. So, so we know that Paul has an open mind when it comes to tradition. If we go back again to Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 7, he said, Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called being uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Boy, don't you know the Jews hated to hear that since, since it was the Abrahamic covenant. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. So in verse 26, then Paul took them in the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So Paul did exactly what they had asked him to do. There's not a clock, so for y'all's benefit, I'm going to lay that up there so I can see so we get out here before 10 o'clock. Paul, Paul does what they want to do. He goes through all of the rituals. He goes through all of the effort. He does everything there that, that he can there so that he doesn't tear down their, their precious rituals. But he is in the city that rejected Jesus. Hello? He is in the city that has rejected the Holy Spirit. He is in the city that he was part of it when they rejected Stephen and stoned him. The, the first martyr of the church came from the first of the seven deacons. He, he is in the, the city, Jerusalem right here. They live up to their Christ-rejecting past. Verse number 27 says that when the seven days were almost ended, it's not even over yet. He's going to do exactly what they asked him to do. He's going to carry out the whole thing. It's not even over yet. And when it had almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, it says that when they saw him in the temple, they stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Remember, Pentecost is a big deal. Paul is not the only one who has made the trip from the, from the region of Asia to Jerusalem. There are thousands, probably tens of thousands of Jews who have made this, this trip back for Pentecost. They're all gathered around. There's Jews from all over the place. But those Jews coming from Asia, these Jews that are coming back on Jewish tradition, they're not coming back for Christianity. They're not coming back for the church. They're coming back for Pentecost. They're coming back. Pentecost was the 50th day the, after the seven weeks of seven, the Feast of Weeks. That's still an Old Testament. They're coming back for a Jewish tradition. This isn't about the church. And these guys that are coming back hate the Apostle Paul. 
You say, hate's a strong word. Well, you can shape how you want it. They've arrested him in every city. They beat him in every city. They've imprisoned him in every city. They've thrown him out of every city. You know why? Because they what? They hate him. And, and now here he is. He, he's come to Jerusalem, especially those at Ephesus. We talked a couple Sundays ago about Ephesus and the great church that, that was built there. And we know that on his trip back, how Paul had the elders at Ephesus come down and spend some time with them because Ephesus is becoming a, a stronghold. So, so here they, they've come and now they, they have him in Jerusalem. Oh, it was one thing when they had him in Caesarea. Oh, it was one thing when, when, when they had him at Philippi. It's one thing when they have them at, at different places and, and there's a gathering of the Jews, but there was a lot of Gentiles in those places. It was for the apostle Paul. There was a lot of Christians in those places that offset, but now you're in Jerusalem where, where the Christian is a minority. So, so they have him here. It says that they ran in a verse when they crying out men of Israel help. This is the man, this is the man, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law. That's a lie. And this place. They said he's teaching against the temple. Further, he brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. The first lie is that Paul teaches all men everywhere against the law. That, that would be teaching uh, against the Jews. But those who are at Jerusalem, they have heard the lies. You can rest assured you don't need Facebook for gossip to travel. Somebody say amen. You don't have to have online. You don't have to have a phone. Gossip has been alive and well as long as man has been alive and well. So the word has traveled back about the lies, about the accusations against Paul. And the Jews there, many of them probably believe what they've heard. The problem is that many of them in the church, they may not believe it. They're not really sure what to believe. They, they've heard it, so it's in the back of their mind. So, so there they are. They, they, they've run in, and the first lie is said that, that this is the man that, that, that's teaching it. Can, can I just plug this in? You don't have to go outside the church to get somebody to listen to your gossip. You don't have to go outside of the church to get somebody to buy into a good, juicy lie. To, to buy into a good, juicy story. You ain't got to go outside the church to get somebody to buy into worldly talk. Amen? The second lie is that the Apostle Paul brought Gentiles into restricted parts of the temple. The only reason Paul's in the temple is because the, the Jewish leaders told, told him to go there. He, he went there for a purpose to try to help the Jew, to try to, to build some reconciliation, to try to, to establish something there with, with the church leaders. So, so the only reason he's even there is because the Jewish leaders told him to go there and do it. And who did they say is not going to go? The Gentiles. They don't have no part in this. We don't want them, and they have nothing to do with this. They just stay away from idols, don't anything strangle with blood, stay away from fornication. They don't have nothing to do with So we know. We know there's no Gentiles there, so, so you know that, that it's a lie. And, and what they're saying is that they brought the Gentiles in. You know, a, a mob doesn't need the truth. All a mob needs is somebody to listen to the lies. A, 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 a troublemaker, they don't need the truth. They just need somebody that'll stand there and listen. One that'll sow discord in a church, they, they, they don't. They don't need the truth. They just need somebody else in the church that'll listen to their garbage and maybe help them spread it a little bit. 
So, so this mob, they don't, they don't need the truth. These are the Jews from Asia. These are the ones that have stirred up lies over there, sent them back to Jerusalem. Now here they come and they say, this is the man that you've been hearing about. This is the man that's been stirring up trouble. And now he has brought Gentiles into the temple and polluted this holy place. Lies. No, he didn't. Everybody is there for Pentecost. So the focus on the temple at this point would be a premium. I mean, they came, they came to gather at the temple, at this holy place, the temple. They came to gather at the temple for, for Pentecost. So, see, in the temple, gen, Gentiles are allowed into the court of the Gentiles. But they're not allowed beyond that point. But between the, the court of, of the Gentiles and the court of the women where the stairs go up, that's where this, this ceremony would have been performed. And at that place, there were barriers, there were markings written in Greek and in Latin that no Gentile could come beyond that point. Any Gentile past that point would, would face certain death. So if there were Gentiles there, then why didn't they get the Gentiles and stone the Gentiles? Right? If there were Gentiles there, why is Paul the one they got? Because he's not a Gentile. So, so they, they, they go in, they take him, they, they don't arrest the Gentiles because Paul's the ones there. Verse 29, it just shows us their assumptions. They had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. They just assumed, I, I mean, that, that well, you know, he, he, had, he had several, several Gentiles traveling with him. And they just assumed that, well, since we saw him traveling with these Gentiles and he's got four men in the temple with him, they just assumed that some of them have got to be these Gentiles. See, this is an, an extremely convenient assumption for them since they were just looking to find anything against Paul, right? If you came up with something true, if you can't get something true, just make something up. So, so they're, not, they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in why Paul is there in the first place. They didn't ask him why you're here. They didn't, obviously, they didn't pay any attention that he's there for, for that feast, for that ritual to try to help those four men get, get cleansed. All they're looking for is a riot, and it's a riot that they created. Verse number 30, all the city was moved. The people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. They drug Paul out. And they're fixing to kill Paul. Make no mistakes about it. This is the end of the road. There's no stopping this mob. There's nobody going to come in and talk reason to them and talk this down. That's why the temple guards, the temple police, the guys in our play, we portray them as different than these Roman guards. You know, they have on the little, the little brown suits. There were temple guards. The Jews had their temple guards. That's why the temple police locked the door because they didn't want the blood of a murder to profane the temple because they're now Pentecost. That would have messed up everything. That, that meant the, te the temple would have had to been cleansed and would have just gotten all in the way of everything. So they shut the door and, and they've carried the apostle Paul out. So I, as I was studying, I was wondering, where are James and the elders of the church? Fair question. Are they not the ones that sent him there? Somebody say yes or no. Are they not the ones that told him to go there and carry out this tradition? So they are the ones who know why he's there, right? Where are they at? Where are they at in all of this? Why, why aren't they there try, at least trying to calm down this mob? Let me ask you this. Where's the church? 
The, the largest church would be the church in Jerusalem. Remember Paul and the ones with him. There's a representative from every church over there in Asia that brought back a huge sum of money to bring to the church at Jerusalem, to take care of the church at Jerusalem, to take care of the poor in Jerusalem. They've gone out here and taken great sums of money and, and brought it back to take care of them. Where's the church? Well, what about this one? For, forget, leave the church out of the equation. Where? are the Christians. They are dragging out the Apostle Paul. There are hundreds and hundreds of people in Jerusalem who the Apostle Paul himself led to the Lord Jesus Christ. They owe their eternity to him for preaching the gospel. Where are they at? See, the, the church remaining silent when it should speak up is nothing new. The church remaining silent while the world is going to hell is nothing new. The world remaining silent while it has a story to tell, a defense to offer, a Christ to offer, a salvation to offer, something that will change. The church remaining silent is nothing new. This mob, they, they have no interest in the truth. They're, they're not interested in a trial. They're not interested in hearing any defense. All, all they're interested in is killing the Apostle Paul. But God always has a plan. Anybody say amen. God always has a plan. And here you go. God does not need Christians to fulfill his purpose. God can use anybody or anything. Remember, he even used a donkey to talk. Balaam, right? God, God can use whatever he wants. And right here, God uses the Roman army. They want to kill Paul. God's got a plan. God's going to get him to Rome, but he's got to go about it a certain way. So God uses the Roman army. There's an uproar. There's a riot in the streets. There's this huge noise. The army and everybody hears about it. The captain of the Roman army in that region hears about it. And, and a, a riot is against the law in Roman law. So any city where a riot is allowed, the captain of the guard, the captain of the army in that city is going to pay for that. So he hears it and he runs in with some soldiers to put a stop to it. He, it says, verse 32, immediately took soldiers and centurions and he ran down under them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. They may be a mob and they may be angry, but a Roman soldier with a shield in one hand and a sword in another hand can change your mind about how you're about to do things. You, you, you may still be mad, but you get a whole group of some Roman soldiers coming in with a shield and some swords. They ain't coming in to tickle your ear with that sword. They're not coming in to let you feel their shield, see how heavy it is. They're coming in that if you don't obey their every command, you're dead, period. End of story. They don't have to ask favoritism. They don't have to ask permission. They're coming in. So the mob, they, they back off, but, but they continue in their stuff. Verse 33, the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what had he done. And so the imprisonment begins. We've looked at Saul became Paul. 
We looked at Saul went on his journey and was trained by God. We looked at Saul was called out of the church by the Holy Spirit of God to separate me out Saul and Barnabas. We looked at Paul as he went on his first, second, third missionary journey. And now you turn the page again. This is where the imprisonment begins. The, the captain of the guard, he asked the question, what has he done? I mean, obviously to him, if you got this kind of tumult going on, you got this kind of anger, this kind of stuff going on, obviously he's got to be a dangerous criminal, right? He asked the same question that Pilate asked Caiaphas about Jesus. What has he done? What, 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 what crime has he committed? What, what is it that he's so guilty of? And just like at the fake trial of Jesus, you get the same kind of answer because that's, all you, that's the only, only thing you're going to get from a mob. That's the kind of answers you can expect from a mob. Some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. The mob doesn't even know what it's all about. Some think it's about one thing. Some think it's about something else. Some, some want to be mad about this. Some want to be mad about that. This, they don't care. All that matters is somebody done stirred them up and got them mad. And they want somebody to pay for it. And Paul's their man. The ones that made him mad said, said, this is the guy. This is what we want to do. Now, I, I want to, I, I want to, we're, we're going to take just a few minutes. Yeah, I got just enough. We're going we're gonna to look at this verse and we're going to stop here because I, I really want to, I want to stop with, with the thought of, of where this, 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 this particular passage right here goes. I, I like to leave off on Wednesday nights knowing we're going to have a whole week and we're going to have to pick back up there. I, I like to try to leave off each time where we got a little something to chew on. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Anybody like to have a little something to chew on for a couple of days? God always has a plan and God's plan is always right. Even though we may not see it at the time. Do I need to say that again? Even though we may not see it at the time. In verse number 33, the apostle Paul is arrested and he's placed in chains. At that moment, he would have been chained to a Roman soldier. That arrest saved his life. Being chained to a Roman guard, taken as a Roman prisoner, saved his life. But it is at that moment that God's purpose for Paul begins to be fulfilled. It is at that moment, at that arrest, that Paul's dream to see Rome begins to become a reality. It is at that moment that, that Paul's vision of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Nero, emperor of Rome, it is at that moment that that vision to be, begins to become more than just a vision. Through, through chains of imprisonment, it's instigated by the Jew. Carried out by the Romans, God's plan moves forward in fulfillment. Paul, at this moment, has no idea how he will preach to Rome. Paul, at this moment, has no idea that this is how he's going to lead many Roman soldiers to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul has no idea in the midst of this crowd and people trying to kill him and Romans arresting him. And he's already been beaten. Understand, he's already been kicked in the ribs, punched in the mouth. He's beat up right here. He ain't just standing there all nice and cozy. This mob's beat him all the way out to where he's at. And at this moment, Paul, Paul has no idea that this is how he is going to lead the household of Nero to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just to plug in, he also has no idea that along the way, there are some barbarous people on a little island, on a little island, Miletum, that he's going to shipwreck him there. So that even along the way, if you look at a map of Paul's travel of how they went down, that island shouldn't have come into the equation. Because that travel map goes to here, to this little island, and then it goes back up to the canal they were supposed to went in. Remember how they got caught in the storm because it shouldn't have been sailing that time of year, right? And it says, we just let her dry. That means the wind was blowing. They were headed into open sea. And if you look on a map, there's a little bitty dot about the size of a pencil head that it ran into. Now, who but God runs it into that? And he ran it into it on purpose because even in the midst of that, along the way of getting Paul to the emperor's house of Rome, he drops off by a little island because there's some barbarous people there who also need to know about Jesus Christ. So, so at the end of the letter, when Paul wrote his letter to the church at Philippi, at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verse 21, Paul wrote, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren which are with me, greet you. That means there's Christians with the Apostle Paul, right? There are brethren with him, and the brethren, along with myself, we greet you. Verse number 22 says, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Now, when you study the Old Testament, we, talk, we, we read about how God brought Israel out of Egypt. It's the Pharaoh, right? Well, when Pharaoh died and the next guy became emperor, became king, what did they call him? Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh died and the next guy became king, what did they call him? Pharaoh. So just like in Egypt, they called all of them Pharaoh. Every emperor after Julius Caesar what was called Caesar. So, so Nero here, Nero is the emperor of Rome. And what Paul says is that I am in the house of Nero. The emperor of Rome and this Christian household, these which are saints in the household of Nero, salute you. Now, who but God does that kind of stuff? You know where it started? Right over there in our text. Where, where a Roman guard came in and put chains and saved him. From this mob. Verse number 23 of, of Philippians chap, chapter 4, the, the final verse, he, he has the conclusion. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Written to the Philippians from Rome by the hand of Epaphroditus. So Paul dictates a letter to Philippi from the house of Nero as a Roman prisoner and Epaphroditus pins it for him. In this letter, while as a prisoner of Rome, Paul uses the word joy six times. While in this Roman prison, while a Roman prisoner writing a letter to, to the church at Philippi, he uses the word rejoice ten times. 
The key verse in those four chapters of Philippians is this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the key verse in all of the chapter. This mob here in our text, in Acts chapter 21, the, these lies that they're telling, that this arrest, this disaster as it appears to human eyes. Anybody with me? Anybody see that? I'm the only one. Nobody else with Everybody else is asleep. Did, did, to pull Paul out of the temple, I mean, everything going on, this is a disaster in, in the eyes of a human being. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the Apostle Paul seeing Rome. But, but it's, not, it's not just the beginning of Paul preaching to, to Nero. It's the, beginning, it's the beginning of the greatest epistles that have ever been written. He was arrested here, carried to here, wrote about the things that he went through, told about troubles and trials, told about all the times I've been beaten, all the, the time I was stoned, all the times I was shipwrecked. He's been bit by a snake to tell about all these things, to get over here to write a letter to say, you and I says, don't worry about any of that. God was greater than any of it. Everything that I went through, God was there. Every storm that I went through, God calmed it. Every trial that I walked in, God was in the midst of it. Every valley that I was in, God was the light of it. Everywhere I've ever been, no matter how hard, no matter how bad, everything, you think you've had hard times? Let me tell you what's happened to me. That's what he says. You think you've been through some bad stuff? Let me tell you about what my life is about. And he says, and all of that is better, it's better that I gain Christ. None, none, none of all that stuff matters. So, so it all started right here when Paul went back. Remember, remember what the warning to Paul was? You're going to be in chains. You're going to go back to Jerusalem. You're going to go back, but you're going to be in chains. You're going to be in bondage. Remember, he was given three specific warnings. Two, two of them from prophets that said, don't go back to Jerusalem. It's going to happen. Apostle Paul's like, I already know that. I'm going back. Who's giving these specific warnings to don't go back. Bad things are going to happen. Re remember the man whose girdle this belongs to is going to be bound. There's the fulfillment. He walks in. The Jewish leaders got him still at, at the synagogue, at the temple for seven days. Now he's been arrested. He's been brought out. And, and now he's been beaten by this mob. And it looks like the worst thing that could happen. But what it was was the beginning of the greatest epistles that would ever be written to you and I. So over 2,000 years later, we're able to stand here and read about the goodness of God, the salvation of God, the deliverance of God. We're able to stand here and read and understand that our situation doesn't have to make sense. We just have to trust God. What we're going through doesn't have to add up in our little finite, feeble mind. We just have to trust God. We may not understand why we're being arrested for doing nothing, but what if it led our so-called president to Jesus Christ and changed his country? Because you can rest assured when Nero and his household got saved, it began to make a change in all of Rome. Amen? Well, a little something to chew on. Lord willing, Lord willing, we'll pick up there next week. But sometimes, sometimes what looks like a disaster 
is the beginning of God about to do something great. God, thank you so much for being so patient with us, so long-suffering. God, for, for us, if it's not going okay right now, it's not okay. If it's going bad right now, it's bad. God, thank you for being patient with us. We don't, we don't have that ability to, to look ahead and say, no matter how bad it is now, God, you're doing something and it's going to work out. You, your word tells that all things work together for good to, to them that love God, for them who are the called according to his purpose, God. So we, we forget that, that, that the, for everything to work together, God, that means there's some bad and some good and you put it all together and it's going to work out for your good. God, help us to remember that every single thing that comes our way must come across your desk. The devil cannot put one thing in our life or one thing on our life that does not have to come through your hand. He cannot touch us physically, mentally, or any other way unless you allow the temptation, God. Father, thank you for being that kind of hedge about us. Thank you for being that kind of protection around us, that kind of strength that holds us up, God. Thank you for being our Lord, our God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our strength, our security. Thank you, Father, for loving us in spite of us. We love you, God. You've been good to us. We just want to tell you thank you in the precious holy name of Jesus. All God's people said.